Welcome to the Ninja Late Podcast Extras. In this episode, we talk about games. Games, more games. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McKinnon. Here we are in beautiful Boise, and outside we have something like four inches of snow. Yeah, uh, that happened, well, by the time this was recorded, uh, what, five days ago? Yeah, and it's got me thinking about the holiday season and Christmas in particular. Yes. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about some of our recent purchases. I know I got some new games, thanks to Black Friday, and you've got some new stuff too. Yeah, not thanks to Black Friday, though, but um, it seems like Black Friday is not necessarily Friday, but like the week and then all of a sudden the month and then the month after and uh, sometimes they forget to take down the signs and it's getting a little (laughs) uh, too uh, commercial I think. Well we've talked a lot about Borderlands 2 in the past and I've kind of tired of it so I went looking for something new and thanks to uh, some deal sites that we've also talked about in the past I got a great deal on Battlefield 4. Ooh, Did you get the China expansion? You know I got such a great deal on Battlefield 4 that I went ahead and sprung for a deal also on the premium pack, which includes, well, it's like a season pass, I guess. Okay. And so I do have the China Rising pack also. I think that came with all the games, but they touted it as the first DLC or something like that. Yeah, and it's out. So we got a handful of new maps and some miscellaneous upgraded different vehicles and stuff. Okay. And... The Black Friday week was also a double experience weekend, which is good for me because I didn't have a lot of time to play, and I was able to rank up and get some unlocks fairly quickly. So I can say I've got now maybe four hours into the game, enough to get, I think, a pretty good first impression. Cool. So did you do mostly the single player, or were you doing multiplayer? I didn't try the single player at all. Now, that's a difference from when I started Battlefield 3, where I started with the single player. Right. And as I've mentioned before, I am I buy the games for the single player, and then if I really like them, I do the multiplayer. I've heard good things about the single player, but I've also heard it's very short, which is not a surprise for a game that is, you know... Primarily multiplayer, right? And, you know, this is a multi-platform, so it's out for, oh gosh, every major system that there is. Yeah, old gen and next gen. But I wanted to get it on the PC primarily to take advantage of the much higher resolution textures. Right. And that is um, supposedly the one major difference between Battlefield 3 and Battlefield 4. Because uh, I've read that a lot of people are saying that the gameplay is identical. Almost. Well, it, it certainly feels like it. And I know they upgraded their Frostbite engine. And one of the things I noticed is in Battlefield 3, there were a lot of... Well, buildings, for example, that were destructible mm-hmm. and would collapse. But most of them, you could just blow out walls and the sort of thing. But in Battlefield 4, they've really expanded that to nearly every structure. So you could, given enough time, really level everything on the map. Trees, buildings, etc. on nearly every map. And there are some exceptions. But in general, yeah, it's impressive the damage you can do. That's pretty cool. As long as you're following your team leader and only do what they want to do, right? Yeah, and that brings us to really the downside of Battlefield 4 and really any multiplayer game, and that is, of course, trying to find a great server. 
Yes. And also on a great server, a great squad. And as you know, I tend to play in short doses when I can find time because I have young kids. Mm -hmm. So to find an uninterrupted hour for Battlefield 4 is not easy to do. So you're kind of stuck with just whoever's out there. Right. And you tried to get me to get the Battlefield 4 on the Black Friday deal. And it was actually a really good deal. I should have bought. But, (laughs) and I say but, based on my experience with Battlefield 3 and my kind of distaste for the single player aspect of it, and I really felt out of place playing multiplayer with it. Right. I decided that I'm not going to spend any money getting the next generation because I'm not going to play it. So I I graciously said, no, I'm not going to get it. It's not going to happen. And then I go to the store and I'm looking around and it's like, hey, it's on sale, but it's like $10 more than the Black Friday deal. Yeah, that's tough. And I think we've all been kind of spoiled by, well, things like Steam sales and the bundles mm-hmm. where it's really hard to pay retail price for any games anymore. Right. And I'm surprised that a brand new game like this is already going on sale in terms of, you know, they're knocking $30 off the price. And that just seems unheard of since it's brand new. Well, you know, Origin has kind of gotten a bad rap. And that's, of course, the front end that's used to launch all of the Electronic Arts games. And really, that's not entirely wrong because I don't like it much either. And in Battlefield 4, there are some great examples. And probably the biggest example is that it defaults to joining games not based on things that you'd really expect, like ping or number of players on the server it really is kind of the first one to respond <laughs> to the to the ping so it at least first day tried to kick me into games and i joined two or three servers that had no one on them whoa which is sort of odd before i figured out how to find the filter and set it up and once i was able to do that uh, i dialed in and initially have been playing just the classic conquest and rush maps which are two map modes that came over from Battlefield 3. And I tried a little bit of team domination as well. And what I can tell you about Battlefield 4 is the gameplay very similar to Battlefield 3, which is not a bad thing. Mm-mm. But the thing that I didn't like about Battlefield 3 the most, boy, that's a mouthful, yeah, is that the maps themselves weren't that good. And they seemed to be either really confined or too open, which benefited snipers and vehicles. Right. And was it Unreal Tournament 3 had that problem with, like, onslaught maps that were just huge. And the only portion of the map you could fight in was, like, the area you were trying to take. Mm -hmm. You could go anywhere you wanted, but you wouldn't be shooting anybody. Yeah, and there was almost no point. So I can tell you that so far my experience with the Battlefield 4 maps is they're much, much better. And they're much more detailed, which is kind of neat. Yeah, and that's the reason to get the game. And one thing that a lot of uh, hardware review sites are saying, hey, get Battlefield 4 because it looks awesome. And anyone that says that the gameplay sucks isn't looking at the game the right way. And I'm like, it's a game. You're supposed to be playing it. You're supposed to enjoy yourself. That is very true. And I can tell you that it can be a little bit punishing on the newbies, and it has that same problem that the COD games have, and that is that inevitably, at least when you first start playing, you seem to be getting killed by people with gear that you don't have a lot. And that can be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the first time I played COD 4 with you and you had the P90 and were just mowing me down <laughs> left and right. And it's like, yeah, I, I got to upgrade. Absolutely. I've seen some threads that seem to indicate that 
the most powerful gun, at least before the premium kit, was the M16A, which, believe it or not, is one of the first games that you can unlock in the game. It has uh, a large clip and a really high reload speed and a decent amount of damage and stability. And that's kind of different from past games where the M16 was always like the default weapon you would get. Yeah, which is sort of odd. Now, I find that I like to play as a medic, which is an assault class in Battlefield 4. And you start out by being able to hand out med kits, and then you earn the ability to use the paddles to essentially revive you know, someone, regen a dead player for a short period of time. Which, by the way, if you play Battlefield Ford, please, please give people a second to get the paddles out because it's not fast and it's very frustrating to run out into fire and try to paddle somebody right when they give up and pull the plug. So, <laughs> um, about that. But anyway, and then eventually you can drop mid packs and some other stuff. But the default weapon for it uh, just wasn't good, but the first unlock is the Scar-L, which does an amazing amount of damage, but kind of kicks like a mule, and uh, so far it's my favorite in the game, but, you know, a long ways to go. Yeah, not bad. So let's see, I've been playing Borderlands. Not Borderlands 2, but Borderlands. Now that's a shock. I know we've talked in the past about Borderlands 2, uh, borrowing some areas from the first Borderlands. Right. They had, they had a couple of areas that, you know, uh, Jack went in and started putting in pipes and destroying <laughs> the area and whatnot. But yeah, I thought that um, I would play the original Borderlands. I got it as a deal, a Steam game sale. I think it was right. like 10 bucks or something like that. And it came with everything. It was the Game of the Year, game oh, of yeah. the year edition. And I wanted to sit down and play through the original Borderlands all the way through. And just kind of see what the story was like. Well, I might be a little nostalgic because I beat the heck out of the first Borderlands. But I really, and now wonder if you'd agree, that I liked the characters from the first Borderlands better than the ones from the second Borderlands. There seemed to be more diversity in what they do. I would agree with that. Um, A couple of things that I noticed. One, the, you know, and I'm speaking from the game interface itself. The interface was a lot simple or simpler, and that was a, a reflection of all the games that were released in 2010, 2011. True, and I think they didn't worry so much about console flexibility and maybe how to make it work for a paddle. Right, and the skill trees were a lot simpler, which I thought was also a very good thing to have, uh, whereas in Borderlands 2, the skill trees are just immense. You can pile points into different skills and basically change your character from just like one character to seven different styles of character, depending on how you want to play. True, which adds replayability. Yeah. And the other thing I really liked was, as you mentioned, the character development. The characters had these immense backstories and they didn't necessarily come out in the game, but you would run into different things like, um, there was, it was, uh, Amanda, I can't remember her last name now, but you would see on the billboards, there would be posters of a missing child. And I'm like, okay, well, what is this, you know, person? So I right. went I did a little web search and it turns out that there's no story behind that, but it's all over. And people had theorized that that's actually Brick's sister. And Brick came to Pandora looking for a sister who ran away, or got kidnapped or something like that, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Um, you know, and I played as Lilith as the Siren because I played Siren in 
Borderlands 2, and I really liked it. Right. And once I f- figured out how to actually play the character, it actually was really fun. And a lot of it was in Borderlands 2. It took me, what was it, like halfway through the first playthrough before I could figure out actually what this character did and how to use this character. Same thing with Borderlands. It actually took a while to learn how to use the actions and like what perks would be used and heck even like where to find weapons and what weapon was better than another one. Right. So it's just basic learning curve stuff, but character development. I really liked the story was, I felt it was really short, right? But it was a lot more detailed. And as I knew what happened later on in Borderlands two, because it's really a continuation. Yes. It made a lot more sense. A lot of people, when the game first came out, really complained about the way that it ended though. And, it was very abrupt. And I felt. and and kind of tacked on. And I don't want to spoil it for folks that haven't played it, because it's referenced in Borderlands 2, but only just very broadly. It's like they didn't want to spoil it anyway. But in short, you reach the end, which is well, without spoiling it, hmm. the the search for the first vault. Right, and the vault opens, and... And you get the big twist ending, which still kind of seems odd. (laughs) Well, the thing about the ending was that you, well, and this isn't really spoiling much, but it's like, okay, there's a boss at the end. You kill the boss, and then it rolls credits. Boom, over. Boom, over. There's not even a chance to go, and there's no story at the end of it. And I want to say in terms of loot, I got like, three rifles and some ammo and that was there was really no loot at all yeah now to be fair there's way less loot in the first borderlands Mm -hmm. but there almost felt like there was more differentiation and i think it's because there was less there was less blending between the different styles but i may be just looking back at it a little more fondly right now the after i finished the first playthrough i I decided that i was just going to get the stories i wasn't going to try to overplay the game I started with some of the DLC and I did the Claptrap DLC and come to find out that's like the third or fourth DLC that came out. Yeah. And I really should have started with the first DLC because all of those are story progressions on top of the game. Right. And they came out as additional chapters that sort of built on each other. Mm -hmm. And also not unlike Borderlands 2, uh, you know, extended your power a little bit each time. Right. Well, it gave you chances to level up and whatnot and... I played the Claptrap one at the very end. There was a, um, you know, the reward was a, um, basically a vault. So you go in and open up a bunch of chests and you can get chances for high level gear. But everyone was saying that it's really mediocre stuff. And that's kind of what I saw. Right. Um, I found some really good weapons early on. And admittedly, since I wanted to get through the game, I did kind of willow tree some stuff. <laughs> oh, no. Call me a cheater or whatever, but I really, you know, it's an old game. I wanted to get through it, get the story, get the feel. Sure. So I found some really good weapons and I would just level those up as I would progress. And that's what got me through. So the first Borderlands still scratches the Borderlands 2 itch a little bit, it sounds like. Yes, it does a little bit. Now, we were just talking about really the cutting edge graphics that were in Battlefield 4. But Borderlands never really tried to be cutting-edge graphics. In fact, a lot of folks have said, I think very rightly, that it was budget-limited, and so Borderlands 2 really is the realization of the vision, which may or may not be true. We'll see if there's a Borderlands 3. But my question is, how did it hold up? Did it feel dated? Did it look dated to you? Yes. 
on both accounts. It looked very dated. The interface was dated. I want to say the graphics, um, the default graphics, I should say, it went to the lowest common denominator, which was actually the lowest graphics available. Right. Some things scaled, which was where the cell shading came in. Other things didn't scale. So I had to go in and tweak everything to turn up the details so I could actually see what was going on. Um, the graphics then, the detail still was not as good as Borderlands 2, obviously. But the feel for the game, and this is this is kind of one of those things you'd have to realize by seeing it, but as I learned how to play the game and turned up the details and whatnot, I started playing it, and I didn't notice that there was the lack of detail. Right. I mean, there was just enough in the game to get me through, and I knew exactly where I needed to go and what I needed to do. And I felt that was the same with Borderlands 2, except that instead of being very cell-shaded, very cartoony without a lot of detail, Borderlands 2 added some more to that to still give it that cartoony feel, but more detail to make it seem more modern. Well, I know we've absolutely talked in the past about the physics overkill that is possible in Borderlands 2. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall there being any of that in the first Borderlands. No, there... There was no actual, like, real explosions, to per se. Um, you know, there was bullet holes that could be turned on. Um, particle effects were really non-existent. You would see, like, a little splash here and there. But I want to say that that was a response to trying to make the game work on consoles and then port it to PCs. I should point out that I actually played the first Borderlands series on the PlayStation 3, and it to this day is one of the very few first-person shooters that I've enjoyed on the PlayStation, the other being the Uncharted series. And so that's a very different experience. But to me, that made the interface make a lot more sense. Right. The one thing that I realized after playing Borderlands and even the first DLC and a couple of the portions of the other DLCs in Borderlands was that this is a a two-year-old game three years old so just depending on how you look at it it really has a lot of replay value even though it's old and it kind of reminds me that you know we had a land party here several years ago and there was a good you know just four of us here we fired up serious sam oh yeah of course and actually played the co-op all the way through two of the you know first and second um encounters and that was actually really fun and that's a really old game oh yeah And it kind of made me think, it's like, well, why don't we see more of these older games being ported over to run on newer machines? That's an interesting comment, because especially with the indie functionality on the consoles, you'd think that some of these games could have a second life as a downloadable title, if nothing else, or like that, a just a a budget level DLC. And I do see some of those things, most recently the painkillers, for example, showing up in some of the humble, bumba, humble bundle sort of stuff, it just seems the exception rather than the rule. Right. You're familiar with Skyrim, right? Yes. Well, it turns out that after Black Friday, and this is when I saw the Battlefield 4 on sale, and was like going, you know, what the heck? Is nobody buying this game or what? <laughs> right. But I noticed that they had the Elder Scrolls Anthology set on sale for like $30 off of the normal $80 or $90 that it was selling for. And this was basically Skyrim, all the DLC, Oblivion, all the DLC, Morrowind, and I don't think there's any DLC for that, 
but then also the two Elder Scrolls games that happened before then. And I can't remember the names right now, but it was basically all the Elder Scrolls together in one pack. Wow, that's an amazing amount of gameplay for the money. Uh, some of those games are hundreds of hours. Right. And what is it? You were telling me Oblivion was something that you sunk a lot of time into? Yeah, Oblivion was probably the first game that I felt compelled to try to beat everything, which was an amazing challenge in that game. And in fact, even after I'd beat it all, I found myself, uh, you know, when I was bored, wandering the area looking for stupid Ninroots, which was one of the more difficult achievements. You had to find, oh my gosh, like so 150 or 170 of these plants that were hidden throughout the world. And, and that was all I had left at one point, which is when I sort of figured out that maybe it was time to buy a new game. <laughs> <laughs> but just the amount of time I put into it um, was easily over 100 hours. And I honestly, it flew by. It well, was, it I was wanna... easy to lose four or five hours. Right. I want to say that I did the same thing playing Skyrim. You know, looking at my Steam stats, was it 110 hours I've logged in Skyrim? And at that point, I was able to complete all the main categories, and I, I was down to just doing miscellaneous tasks that you would see. You know, I bought all the houses and all the towns, and at that point, it's like I really needed to play the DLCs, but I didn't really want to buy them at the time. Sure, and Skyrim is one of those games that I find myself still coming back to. Now I have that also on the PlayStation 3, and it plays really well in the first person on the controller, which was a very pleasant surprise. But I find myself fairly regularly slow cruising it on sale on Steam because some of the plugins and the user-made content for it, as we've talked about in the past, is very appealing, and it's pretty close to that price point now. Right, well... I want to say the modding aspect of Skyrim was one of the things that made it popular, at least with me. But it turns out that Oblivion was where the modding really took off. There was, I think, six or seven DLCs for Oblivion. And a lot of it was based off of what people were creating to go with it. You know, different skins and different models and, and stuff like that. Well, it sounds like a pretty good value for the money on both of those older titles. And I'm honestly a little bit surprised that they're not getting more play, especially when you look at how much game you can get for that little money. Yeah. So speaking of the old games that we've played, of them, which one do you think would work best if somebody upgraded it? You know, we're talking like games you've played that you haven't played in a while that you think would benefit from being upgraded onto a modern Oh, wow, that is tough. Uh, I mean, the obvious choice is, for me, something like the early EA game Mail Order Monsters or something from that generation. Maybe original Bard's Tale would be awesome as an immersive, you know, Skyrim sort of thing. But both were games that I sunk an amazing amount of time in when I was very young. Right, and those games, part of the allure was the fact that you had to use your imagination along with the game. So it wasn't totally immersive. It was kind of in your head. Well, recently, Bard's Tale has resurged as a phone game and is available on your Android and your iOS and tablet even. And I picked it up for my Transformer. And the texture download on it alone is insane. So somebody's done some pretty serious work converting it. And I'm really looking forward to diving into it. 
But Mail Order Monsters and some of those early EA titles seem to have just been forgotten on the shelves. And I realized that there wasn't a lot there because, you know, most of it was in your imagination. But there's just something about those early games that I think could do a resurgence. And Mail Order Monsters was essentially a game about, like it sounds, buying monsters and tromping around the world and fighting each other. And there really hasn't been something that scratches that itch in a long time. Wow. I might have to look into that one because that kind of sounds interesting. You know, my thought would be a little simpler, I think. And I hate to say it, but Quake 1. Oh, no. I spent an amazing amount of time playing Quake. Yeah, I think we all have, actually, because it was one of the first real first-person shooters that had 3D textures. Well, 3D models, for that matter. It had different DLC. Well, not DLCs, because you couldn't download them, but mission packs that you would buy and add on to the game. And it had the same same engine, same look and feel, same gameplay, just different monsters, different maps. Well, ID has made an attempt to keep the Quake franchise alive, and I've played some of the newer Doom games, which are the spiritual successors, mm-hmm. and they scratch the itch, but none of them have really made me feel like a great investment of time. Right. Well, id is very famous in building games to show off engines to sell to potential game developers wanting to build a game. Yeah. And, you know, Quake 2 was a really good example because that spawned a whole slew of games based off of that engine. Same with Quake 3 and even Quake 4, but not so much popular games. And that reminds me that they once put out a game called Heretic, which was a great variation on the first-person shooter that I haven't seen anything really like since. Maybe Shadowrun tried, but, you know, to have something besides just machine guns. Yeah. Well, Heretic was mostly a spell casting game, right? Yeah. Spell casting, first person shooter. I mean, really. Oh, wow. So that was kind of the predecessor of maybe a painkiller. Yeah, but painkiller still used essentially firearms. It didn't have spells and magic. And I guess you could argue that Skyrim does that sort of thing, but it's a single player experience. It might be kind of fun to throw fireballs and other craziness at other players' arena style. Right. Well, I would challenge some of our listeners to send in ideas of what kind of games they want to see make a resurgence, and maybe they don't have any, or maybe they have like some really amazing ones. And if there are some old games that can be resurged, reselected, and rerun on today's modern machines we may have missed, let us know so we can fire them back up and relive that past. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2013. Thanks for listening.